Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I am M. I'm an alcoholic, grateful, and filled with the joy of living. What a weekend this has been. What a rare mood I'm in. (laughs) It's almost like being in love. Ever since I got off the plane, I I felt the love and the friendship of of this place, St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you all for giving me uh, Ken and Marilyn uh, hosts. They have been perfect. They made our visit like perfect. I want to thank the committee for inviting Ann and I out here. I was telling some some of the other speakers today that it seems like when we need a session of uplifting, we get to come to a wonderful place like this. And I'm truly grateful for that. You know, it took a weekend like this and speakers like we've had here to get me over the horrible feeling I had since Minnesota Vikings beat my Washington Redskins up. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it, it took some doing. <laughs> but I believe that I want to try to believe that it was just a coincidence. But since I've done some research, I think I'm in for an interesting year. <laughs> They are back. You know, when I first came through those doors in rooms like this, I was a very, very sick man. Not only did I have the insidious disease of alcoholism, I had another disease that I like to describe as po'omi. Ism. And for years, I stayed drunk behind these po-o-me-isms. I'd like to describe to you a couple of my po-o-me-isms that I relied on so long to drown myself in alcohol. And one of my best poemism is there is a best was the fact that I was born a little bastard child. As I look back, one of the worst things I thought then was to be born a bastard. And my mother had ten children and none of us had the same father. What a dark cloud hanging over your head in a place like Greensboro, North Carolina where everybody knew everybody. And that caused me to drink for many years. It caused me not to be like other children for many years. But then I came into this fabulous program and traveled around these United States and some parts of Canada and other countries. And I found out being a bastard wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> I find out there's a whole lot of them running around out there. <laughs> and I found out when I walked into these rooms, you could care less whether old Liam Gim was a bastard or not. The only requirement for me was a desire to stop drinking. How sweet it is. 
Another one of my poor me's was the fact I was born black. Oh, that was a goodie. Because I was born black to stay black a long time. <laughs> you see, down in North Carolina, some 70 years ago, it wasn't very popular to be born black. Especially if you was a loud mouth, arrogant black, like I was. See, the sheriff told me one time, as he and his deputies arrested me, we can stand black people, but not loud mouth blacks like you. And week after week, it seems that I ran into a foul of the sheriff and his deputies. But then I came into this fabulous program, and I found out that being black wasn't so bad after all. Because, you know, not too many years ago, as I traveled around, I would see the black youngsters. They hold up their hand and they say, black is beautiful. And at first I said, gee, what's wrong with them? And they would say, black is beautiful. So one day I decided to check this blackness and, and these sayings out. So I went in the house and I, I pulled up all my clothes and, and I got in front of a full-lit mirror, mirror. And it didn't take me long to agree with them. <laughs> and then I came through these doors in a fabulous program of AA. And being around you beautiful Alanons and Halatee, I found out that you could care less whether M. Gilmore was black or not. The only requirement for me to belong to this fabulous AA organization was a desire to stop drinking. How sweet it is. And ever since that day, these two poor me's has played very little in my life. But you know, I know the higher power that I found in this program was working in my life back then. Because I had many, many warnings that, that alcohol was no good for him guilt. You see, I found out early in high school that I was a pretty fair athlete. I don't know how mama raised it, but it seemed like she raised five big, strong, healthy boys. And I could play football, basketball, you name it, I could do it. I could swim like a fish and outrun the dead. But I found out about my second year in high school that alcohol was no good for me. You see, I was introduced to alcohol through one of my brothers. This brother of mine was a big dude, 250, 220. And he used to work all the week at a Chevrolet place there in Greensboro. And he was quiet Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday up to about 12 o'clock. And then every Friday something would happen. And this guy would come home and he was a changed person. He was talkative. He was argumentative. And I used to wonder what happens to this guy on Friday. You see, he used to even talk back to Mama. Mama weighed 280 pounds. And you just didn't play with Lula because she would hurt you. But I would hear this guy upstairs, and, he, and this is what he was saying. I, I, look, I got $2 I'm going to give you, and that's all you're going to get. 
Do you understand me, lady? And I knew that he had some mysterious drug or something was happening. So I decided to peep his whole card the next Friday, and he came in and he took a brown paper bag and he set it up under the house. No basements down there because it's sandy. And and he went in the house to, to wash up, and I heard him telling Mama again. And I went under that house and looked in that bag, and lo and behold, there was a half a gallon of what I later become known as North Carolina moonshine. And they say sometime it reached 180 and 190 proof. It had beads on top. And I remember unscrewing the top off of that half a gallon and the smell I didn't like but I decided to taste it. And I remember that warm glow, that warm sensation of my first drink. And I crawled out from under that house and, and I said, hold it. And I went back. I liked that feeling it gave me. And I remember I took another big swig. And when I stood up, I felt like I was 10 feet tall. I felt like I could out-talk anybody. I could out-dance anybody. And gee, it made me feel just like I always wanted to feel. And I believe that I accepted alcohol right then and there in that backyard as my friend and my savior. Because it wasn't many days after that Friday that E.M. Gilmer didn't have alcohol in his body in some form or another. It sounds like I was an instant alcoholic. I remember it's during football season, keeping the Vikings and Redskins in mind. Ugh. And I was the first string halfback. Running back, as they called them back in those days, on the Dudley High football team. And we had won 11 straight games, and we were to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, to play Second Ward High School for the Western District Championship, and the right to play somebody in the East. And I remember, it was on a Friday night in November, and it was cold. And I decided that, that, that in case we were not as good as we thought we was, I had better take with me a little of my miracle drug that I had discovered. So I went and I got me a half a, a little vinegar bottle and the bootleggers around Greensboro, they were good to me. They liked me because I won money for them. There was nothing to get a half a pint of moonshine. So I made a deal with the water boy. His name was Pee Wee. You see, I weighed 210. And Pee Wee weighed 98 pounds. And he would do almost anything only him asked him to do. So I told him, when we get on the bus tomorrow, I'm going to give you a little bottle. And you to put it in the water bucket up under the top. And if I feel like I needed it, I would wink my eye at him. And then you were to follow me. So I could get this miracle drug inside of this fantastic body. I remember in that game, it seems like we could do nothing right. Any football player in this house know what I'm talking about. It seems like none of our plays was, was going right. It seemed like our defenses wasn't right. And at halftime, Charlotte was leading us six to nothing. And we went in that locker room, and Coach Nixon was really giving us the old one-two language, which I no longer use. That's the way he was talking to us. He was mad. And he went down the line, and he told the guys what they wasn't doing. Then he came to his star running back, and he said, Em, Gimmer, what is wrong with you, boy? You ain't doing nothing right. And you know I listened to him, but I wasn't paying that dude no mind. 
because I knew somewhere in the bottom of a water bucket I had the answer. And when he finished, I winked my eye at Pee Wee. He followed me behind the wall where the little boys went and he gave me my miracle drug. And I remember I drank half of that half a pint. And I felt that warm glow. I felt that feeling of superiority. And he started to put it back under the towels and I said, hold it, Pee Wee. Hold it. If that much makes me feel this good, give me the rest. Because we got a game to win. And I drank the rest of the half a pint. And I trotted back out on that field. I felt like a black stallion. I was ran to go. It reminds me of the commercial I see that guy saying, give me the ball, give me the ball. Over in the third quarter, the other team threw a pass. And me and my liquor went after it. And I intercepted that pass. And I took off. I was weaving and I was bobbing. I was looking good. It was just one thing wrong. I was going the wrong damn way. <laughs> and some of my players hollered, M, please, M, please. And I stopped short of that goal line and reversed that field. Ran through 21 players and made a touchdown. <laughs> and we went on to win that game 13-6. to And when we got back to Greensboro, this is what was down in the corner of the Greensboro Daily News. M. Gilmer runs 185 yards <laughs> for a touchdown. <laughs> Anybody but an alcoholic would have stopped drinking right then and there. <laughs> but not me. I just say it was a streak of bad luck. And I kept right on using my miracle drug through high school and one year in college. Where I got kicked out because of alcohol. I remember I went away to New York in shame because I was the only one in the family that ever got a chance to go to college. And I blew it. But alcohol was to become an integral part of my life. I was the kind of alcoholic that failed that no, I couldn't do anything without alcohol. I thought it was stupid to go to a dance or go anywhere to a movie without some alcohol. Alcohol became my personal friend. I remember World War II came along and they drafted 10 million of us to put Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, and Mr. Tojo in their place. That was the big one. And I remember my attitude and my thoughts went like this. If they won't let me be General MacArthur's assistant, I'm going to get drunk at him. And I did. And the things that I've done in that army, I don't talk about them too much now. Oh, yes, I put them down in my four-step inventory. But some of the things that I did, they still would come after me if they knew it. There is no statute of limitations when you do things that I did in that man's army. And I firmly believe if they hadn't put me out of that army in 10 months, we'd have lost that damn wall. That's the kind of alcoholic I was. I remember I came to Virginia where I now live after spending some 13, 14 years around New York. And I made a resolve that I was going to do something about this problem you said I had. I didn't think I had a problem. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. Only thing I knew that I did not act like other people acted when they drank. You know, there comes a time in every one of our lives 
that we look in a mirror and we don't like what we see. And that happened to me. When I got to Virginia, I went to work for the Veterans Administration. And I was a holy terror. How they hide me, I never know. Because I was drinking daily. Nobody wanted to be around M. Gilmore when he was drinking. And I know we alcoholics many times say we don't care what people like us a lot. We are liars. Because when you get to that stage in alcoholism, when I got there, I wanted so badly to be, to be accepted by the people around the valley. But I was a full-fledged alcoholic and didn't know it. I tried every combination I know. And most alcoholics know them all. I tried not drinking on Monday. <laughs> not drinking on Sunday. I tried everything. I tried drinking different brands. Because I wanted to drink and act like my peers. And they would get paid and they would go out and dance and, and make romance and I would blow it every time. They would buy the cars and they never had a wreck. Not me. I would mess up every time. I remember when I was trying all of these different accommodations. Trying to drink and, 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 and be like other people. I got so desperate one time that I heard about a lady down in South Carolina and she dealt in roots. Her name was Aunt Tisapine. And a guy said, look, go down and see her down in Rock Hill and I believe she might be able to help you in. So I got sober enough to, and I got in my car and down 220 into Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I found Aunt Tisapine. She's a great big woman. And she had a red band down around her head, and she looked at me, and this is what she said. Oh, you have problems uh, controlling your drinking. I got just the thing for you. She said, you go up the avenue, and you come back in about a half an hour, and I'll have it ready. I came back, and she had a little tobacco sack. And she put something in it, and she said, now you take this sack, and when you get back home, before you drink, you tie this sack around and put your shirt and tie on and say you're going to be able to drink and do whatever you want to and you ain't going to have no problems. I remember when I got back home, I believe I was a happy sky in the Roanoke Valley. At long last, I was going to find something that would, alcohol wouldn't make me stupid. Wouldn't have me going to jail. I'm going to be able to go to work. And I remember the first night I went out to drink heavy. I put that bag around my neck. And we proceeded to drink our first fifth. We proceeded to dance some more and to open another fifth. And over about the third fifth, a strange feeling came on over him. A strange feeling that, that, that this alcohol was telling me somebody was trying to take my girl. And I started to get evil and angry. And lo and behold, before 10 o'clock, I had been arrested two times. And I remember rubbing that bag. Come on, come on. Work for me. And then I'd take a drink. But it never worked. I did not know I was an alcoholic. And I wasn't like other people. Another one of my friends told me one night, said, Em, say, you're a good guy. I like you. So now I'm going to give you my secret so you can drink and quit getting in trouble. Before you start drinking next Friday night, go down to the Kroger store and get you a a pint of olive oil. Now don't get upset him. Said, I'm going to tell you what it's going to do. 
You take two spoonsful of that olive oil and just drink all you want to, and here's what's going to happen. That liquor's just going to slide through you. And it ain't going to have time to make you drunk. It ain't going to have time to make you evil. And you know I believe that dude. Being the alcoholic I was, I went and got a quart. And I didn't take time to put on, use no spoon. I just took me some gollops out of that olive oil. And I proceeded to drink. And I proceeded to go to jail. The only thing that doggone olive oil did was giving me the doggondest case of diarrhea I've ever had. <laughs> oh, yes. M. Gilmer was an alcoholic. And I was a chronic one. I don't know about you other alcoholics, but I love alcohol so much. Me and my alcohol used to communicate. We used to talk to each other. And I remember one evening I got me a fifth and set it on my dresser. And that bottle said, M, say, you know what's wrong with you? You need to get married, boy. And I said, I have a dog gone. Okay. <laughs> so I proceeded to drink the fifth and I went up the street half drunk and stopped by one of my little sandlot football players' house. And on the mantelpiece, I saw a picture. And I believe it was the picture of the most beautiful woman that I ever saw. She was light brown, pretty amber hair, bluish green eyes. Me and my liquor said, that's it. You say, but look, you know, you know, you better think about this marriage thing. See, I was in my late 30s. And me and my liquor set up certain criteria that this lady was going to have to have to get this big hunk of flesh. We decided that she first was going to have to be beautiful. Because I only had to look in the mirror and see how ugly I was to know that I didn't want to go around through life with nothing ugly hanging on my arm. The next thing, I was chief steward of a union body, representing 1,800 black and white people. I had to deal with the congressmen. I had to deal with senators. And she, my liquor said, and she's got to be intelligent. And I said, okay. And last but not least, I look and I decided she was going to have to be obedient. You see, I thought I had the answers to a perfect marriage. I knew from the mistakes that mama had made in my family. I knew the mistakes that my friends had made. And all this beautiful lady was going to have to do was to listen to me. Well, I met Ann, I dated Ann, and I married Ann. Now, all of you know, yes, Ann was beautiful. Yes, Ann was intelligent. But ladies and gentlemen, let me love her with you. She was far from being obedient. <laughs> That goes on today. <laughs> but you know, I convinced Anne very early in my marriage that I wasn't an alcoholic. I only drink heavy at times. And I remember Anne asking me one day, M, if you're not an alcoholic, why was you so drunk? First time that I saw you. And me and my liquor went to work. 
And I looked her in the eye and I say, and you just don't understand. You were so beautiful, so fascinating, so lovable, that I needed some courage to look in your eyes. <laughs> and you know that fool believed it. But very early in my marriage, Ann found out, no, 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 M was not a heavy drinker, but I was a full-fledged alcoholic. I never share with a group like this that I don't publicly tell Ann I love her for staying with me during this period. As you heard from Ann the day she had four children. Three beautiful girls and a strong Marine. And I had to tell Ann, thank you for staying with me during this period. Because how this lovely girl stayed with me, the way I used to come in and curse those beautiful children, calling them everything from bitches, the punks. Yes, yes, I know that the high power was working for me then. Because I believe that Anne was the only person on this green earth that could have got me to this fabulous program. And God must have knew that. So she stayed all through those terrible days. Thank you, Anne. I love you for it. But there came a time that Anne got tired of all this notoriety. The police. The money being spent. And I remember the morning she came to the bed and she said, the heck with you, the heck with AA, the heck with Eleanor. I'm sick of you. You need to do something about your drinking. I'm out of here. And I knew then that I didn't want to lose the one and only person that I'd ever loved. I knew that I didn't want to lose this family. And she just built a little new house. At least she built it. I was drinking. She was stealing money from my pocket. I knew it. But I knew that we needed that home. And I didn't want to lose it. But you know, she didn't leave. I remember she started leaving home on Sunday evening, about 3 o'clock. And she would come back about 6. And I could time her on the town clock. You know, we alcoholics are jive turkeys. Those Al-Anon here that got an alcoholic, regardless of what he fails, tells you or what you might think, we are jive turkeys. You see, we don't stay drunk all the time. A lot of times we play drunk. And I used to be a professional at that. I remember Ann would leave home at three o'clock and come back at six. For a while it was a pleasure because it gave me and the boys three hours of unobstructed drinking. You see, Ann was the kind of, of Al-Anon that, that, that would stand up over you while you're trying to drink. And, and she would make comments like this, why don't you save that money? We could use it for the children. See, that could mess up a man's drinking. <laughs> and she would go away at three and come back at six. And boy, for about a month and a half or two months, I was having a ball. Me and the boys could get downstairs and we could just drink and just do what we wanted. And puke and pee, we could do anything. <laughs> and didn't have nobody to bother us. But then one evening, she got ready to go out. 
and I got worried. You see, if you look at Anne, you can see Anne is younger than me. Ten years. Anne is prettier than me. And Anne is smarter than me. So you got a young girl and, and you, you got a wife that, that's, that's beautiful enough to have any man in the Rono Valley. And she's going out every Sunday at three, coming back at six. And you ain't doing what you're supposed to do at home. You see, sex didn't play no part in my life. Drinking was top priority. And Anne, I don't know what they was telling her in them meetings, but she was dressed up so pretty. She would put that blue eyeshadow on, on, on her eyes. And she would throw that old amber hair to the side. And she would spray that evening in Africa, I mean Paris, uh, behind her ears. <laughs> and she would get in that car and she would wink her eye at me. And all so, oh, she would go. So one Sunday, I, I said, I'm a, I gotta find out where she goes. You see, I thought some dude out there might be giving me some help with my homework. And I followed Ann, and lo and behold, she went over to the VA Medical Center where I worked. Well, we had 2,300 psychiatric patients. But I knew they didn't stay crazy all the time. I thought maybe she found a boyfriend over there. So I summoned all my shop stewards one evening, Friday evening. And I told him that Ann was coming through that gate at 3 o'clock. I want you all, and this is an assignment, to follow her and find out where she goes and what she does. And that Monday morning, I went in, and lo and behold, one of my better shop stewards named Thomas Calfey, he's now dead from alcoholism, but he came up and said, M, Ann came in that gate at 5 after 3. She went over to building 10, and I said, go ahead. What did she do then? And she said, she went in the first floor, and she went in a little door. And I said, what was behind the door? And he said, I don't know. I said, well, you better hurry up and find out. <laughs> he said, wait a minute, M. On that door, it had this, A-L-N-O-N, L, no. I said, what is that? He said, I don't know. I said, you, you better find out. <laughs> so he went one way and I went the other. And we found the chaplain. And we asked him, what was this Alanon thing? He was a little short chaplain. And he came up to me and he looked up at me. He said, Alanon is a situation where the loved ones are big trucks like you. <laughs> Come to learn how to cope. And with that, he turned and walked away. And I said, oh, my God. Yeah, this lovely girl had been going to these meetings every Sunday to learn how to live with a big honorary drunk like me. I believe that was the first time that I ever seriously thought about doing something about this problem you said I had. During that time, Ann started to proposition me and started using the Al-Anon tricks of the trade <laughs> on me. And I want to tell you, if there's any Al-Anon who still got a practicing alcoholic, listen. Listen to these tricks of the trade. They work. <laughs> and started coming home, asking me, how did I want my hamburgers fixed? She would ask me, was your shirt iron all right? Now listen. After you've been called old S.O.B. for years, 
and your wife start coming home with all of this jive, you see, you could have a heart attack. <laughs> and I don't care how much I cursed, and I don't care how mad I got, all she would do was smile. And I used to tell my drinking buddy, I said, man, this room is running me crazy. She won't even fuss. Eleanor tricks of the trade. I remember one morning I got up and, and, I, and I went in my pocket to see if I could find a piece of a cigarette. You see, you see, I couldn't buy my alcohol and, and cigarettes too. So I used to choke my cigarettes at night so I have a half of one the next morning. And I knew what pocket I put it in. And lo and behold, in that pocket was some literature. <laughs> I took it and I threw it in the garbage. And a few days later, I started to put on my shoes. <laughs> and in my left shoe was some literature. And I remember I told Ann that morning in a very loud and a brucey voice, look, you can go to that Aleron or Alatron, but you quit putting this garbage in my clothes. You're going to make me late. I'm going to lose my job. And all she would do was smile. She smiled so much I used to call it the Alnon smile. One morning I got up, went to the toilet, sit down. I was sitting there tending to my own business. And I started to unroll the toilet paper. That was some literature. And it was the 20 questions. Every alcoholic in here in Al-Anon, too, know about the 20 questions. And I got up and I locked that door because I wasn't going to let her catch me reading that stuff. <laughs> and I read those 20 questions through. And for a few moments, I got serious. And I read them again, and before I finished that time, tears were streaming down my face. And this is what I said. My God, I must be one of them things. You see, I thought an alcoholic was the lowest down creature on God's green earth. We had an alcoholic program <laughs> at the VA. And I hated them guys' guts. They would get milk when they wanted it. They was eating steak when the other a patient was eating stew beef. They got all this provincial treatment. And I hated that guts. And lo and behold, these 20 questions was telling M. Gilman in no uncertain terms. I was an alcoholic, and I had been one for a long time. I came out the confines of that bathroom, and there stood my black belt, Eleanor. <laughs> Let me tell you about Eleanor's. You see, there's Eleanor's. And they go to meetings and they learn how to cope with us. And then there's black belt Alanons. I mean, those are the ones that, like Ann, they went up in the mountain and they talked to a guru or somebody. And he gave them all of these tricks and the way to torture you without even touching you. And she was an expert. And so she stood there and she smiled. <laughs> She knew I'd been in that bathroom. She saw the tears running down my face, and she caught me in my weakest moment and propositioned me. She said, Em, you know, I said I was going to leave you. But if you'll do what I tell you, I'll consider staying. I want you to go to work, and I want you to come home. I got two men I want you to speak, talk to you this evening. And she started to go out the door to work. And she looked back and she said the words that cut like a knife. And don't drink. It had been years, ladies and gentlemen, since I'd gone 24 hours without drinking something. 
But I went on to work that day and looked like everybody at the medical center had some alcohol, one form or another. Beer, gin, everything. And I was able to tell him, no way, ain't drinking today. Going home to the woman I love. And I went through that day without drinking. On the way that home that evening, something strange happened to me. I'm only about 10 minutes away from the medical center. But I got halfway home. It seems like there was some little men down in my belly with golf shoes on. <laughs> and they was kicking and scraping. And the pain was excruciating. And it sounded like I had heard a little voice coming up out of my soccer bus. And it said, M, you better get a drink, boo. You're going to die. And I said, like, heck I will. I'm going home to the one I love. But when I got almost home, the pain was so bad. Yes, I had to go to my bootleg joint and break my promise to the only person that I had ever loved. Yes, it was that day that I found out that I was powerless over alcohol. And my life had become unmanageable. I got one drink and I went home. And there sitting in my living room was two men. Two white men. <laughs> you see, white men back in those days didn't visit black people. But there they sit, and I remember I came through the patio, through the kitchen, and I looked over, and I saw them, and I took off and went to the bathroom and locked the door. And I said, oh, my God, she's going to have me killed. <laughs> but finally I came out, and they talked to me about this fabulous program. There they sit there with botany $500 suits on, the shoes shine to perfection, and a new Buick Riviera sitting in my driveway. And they were trying to tell me that they were alcoholics. I thought they were the biggest liars that I'd ever heard. But they finished talking to me, and I said, thank you for coming. When I need you, I'll call. And they left, and I looked in the hallway, and there stood my Alamon. She was full of smiles. At least she had got me to talk to somebody from this fabulous program. And I said, Ann, thank you for sending for those men. I know what's wrong with me now. I've been drinking the wrong brand. Honey, from now on, I ain't going to drink nothing but Johnny Walker Red Scotch. Anybody makes the money I make and drink that old corn licking mess, I ought to be sick. And all she did was smile. Because she knew that the end was almost there. She knew that alcohol in any form was going to have the same effect on old M as the other would have. And she went along with the program. Matter of fact, she used to bring it home to me. And I remember the first time that she brought some alcohol home. <laughs> I refused to drink it. <laughs> because I thought she was going to poison me. Because she tried so many things and I almost died. But then I got so, yes, that last two weeks. She would even bring it home to me. Alanon, tricks of the trade. And one Sunday it happened. My Johnny Walker Red Scotch gave out. And I went out to my bootleg joint. And I put some corn liquor on top of it. And yes, I had my first case of DTs. A few days ago, one of my friends said, M, you can just go to hell. And I said, hold it. Don't tell me that. I've already been. I remember that day when I fell through that closet and that fur coat fell on me and I fought it for four hours. <laughs> I thought it was a bear. <laughs> DT's is hell. 
And my dog woke me up licking my face. And I called Ann and I said, Ann, send for those men. I surrender. This alcohol has beat me to death. I was fearful. I thought I was going to die. Now whoever get it in called two guys, the same two guys, and he took me to my first AA meeting at the Salem Presbyterian Church, Main Street, Salem. I never will forget that night. I sit in the back row near the back door, and I did it for a reason in case I would have to make an emergency exit. Because I didn't know there allowed black people in that church. But up behind a rostrum, similar to this, a guy stood up and he told his story of how rotten his life had been. How he had gone into AA and how sweet his life was then. I didn't hear much that evening because I was afraid. And on the way home that night, I looked over at my black belt, Elanon, and she was all smiles. Have you ever seen an Elanon the first night she get her drunk to a meeting? <laughs> Happy people. <laughs> I remember I got home and, and I told Ann, look, I got to go get uh, a pack of cigarettes. I had to find out more about this AA thing. I had to go see the smartest people in the Roanoke Valley. I went out to my bootleg joint. And they were sitting around a table and they had a half a guy in the moonshine. And I hit that table and I said, hold it. The captain's here. Want to talk to you about this AA thing up at that church. And I remember one of my friends. His name was Roughhouse. He said, Emerson Gilmer, don't you go back up that place no more, boy. And I said, tell me why not Roughhouse. He said, just don't go back. And he saw me getting upset. And they didn't want to see me get upset because I was dangerous. And I said, tell me why I shouldn't go back. He said, M, you know one thing. You might have sickle cell anemia or some of them other disease, but you can't be no alcoholic boy. Don't you know that's a white man's disease? <laughs> you know I believed him. I jumped in my old truck and I went home and I told Ann, wake up, girl. Wake up and I ain't got to go back up to them old meetings. Rough out said, I ain't no alcoholic. And you ought to have seen that out of eye. They flashed and this is what she said. The hell with Rough House. We going back. I'm so glad she made that decision. We went back the next week and I started to copy in what you fabulous people were saying. I started to copy in the serenity prayer. I used to love to see the chairman get behind this roster and, and, and say, rarely have we seen a person there who's thoroughly followed our path. And I used to sit there by myself, the only black in that room. And this is what I would say, gee. It's a chance for me. I didn't like being like I was. I wanted to be the man that Ann wanted me to be. I wanted to stop drinking and be a man that my kids could, could love. Because I'd mistreated so many people. I remember the days turned into weeks. The weeks turned into months. And I remember one night we had a discussion and they told me about a love in this fellowship. The only kind of love I've ever known was the love that I read about in the old books. Not a love that I see in movies. But they told me about a strange love and, and they called it an unconditional love. A love that knew no race. A love that knew no social standing. And they told me I would find it in rooms like this, regardless of where I went. I began to like the feeling I was getting. I began to like this love 
of this fellowship. And it wasn't long before they took me in as a part of that group. And I can tell you now from that time I was chosen, I guess, by a higher power to carry this message to every state in the United States and a few other countries. And I can tell you tonight I found that unconditional love everywhere I've gone. I remember one of my friends when I was invited to, to speak at the Alabama State Convention. He asked me, are you really going to Alabama? I said, just as sure as you got holes in your nose. <laughs> and they say, man, they still lynching people down there. I said, I don't know about that. But all I know, the AAs can care less. Because they have invited me to share. And I found this love in every place that I've ever gone. I remember meeting out in Las Vegas, all Indians out near the Hoover Dam. I found this love. I found it in Omaha, Nebraska, Montreal, Canada. Love unconditionally. How sweet it is. I feel that love here tonight. I felt that love ever since my friend picked me up. Where else can I find this love? Other than AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen. It don't exist. That's why I keep coming back. There's three priceless gifts that stand out in my life. And that's the gift of discovery. When I discovered this fabulous program, the second one was the gift of recovery. And the last and final priceless gift is the gift that I'm enjoying right now, the gift of sobriety. This feeling of well-being, this feeling that, that, that you know everything is going to be all right. I got a thing I go through in the morning. I know once Ann thought I was going crazy, but I was sober. She didn't care. But I'd go out on my patio and I would say to the top of my voice, come on world, come on, come on. Come on with your heartaches. Come on with your misunderstanding. Go ahead, George Bush. Go ahead and take my Social Security. <laughs> Go ahead, Hussein. I had whomever who is. Go ahead and blow up the world. I would say, ain't nothing this world can put on me today. And being God can't take care of. That's the peace that I found in this fabulous program. And that's the way I feel right now. Oh, yes, my life is a conglomeration of peaks and valleys. Even in sobriety, I was foolish enough to think once once I got sober, everything's going to be all right. Oh, that's a joke. <laughs> yes, I have my peaks. I stay on the peaks 98% of the time, like I am tonight. But then I'm going to have some valleys. That's when this program. That's when these 12 fabulous steps start working in my life. And I look forward to receiving more priceless gifts. All I have to do is stay sober one day at a time. My mother bless us. So. She used to sing a song down in North Carolina when she was hanging up the clothes. To dry on the line. And it went like this. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. He walks with me. He talks with me. And he tells me I'm his own. 
I used to didn't understand what the old gal was saying. But tonight I do. Because I believe this higher power that I found in this program, working through people like you, he was taking care of her and her ten children back then. How sweet it is. And I believe if I continue to do this thing one day at a time and keep hanging out with people like you, I don't ever have to take another drink. And my life will continue to be beautiful. Yes, priceless gifts. I believe every AA, every Eleanor, every Alateen, under the sound of my voice, we are truly blessed. I believe that the light of God surrounds us. The love of God enfolds us. The power of God protects us. The presence of God watches over us because wherever we are, God is and all is well. I love you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.